0: chapter 30 of from mud to mufti by bruce barne's father this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 30 more mountains ordeal by mule the alpini another night in another hotel and then came the visit to the alpini in the morning we went round to see some potentate or other who lurked in the town hall which had been taken over by the military authorities he gave us some permission to do something which i did not catch And off we started. It was necessary to do about twenty miles in the car before we got near these mountain trenches, and then came the most terrible feat of all. We had been driving along the usual mountain spiral roads, rushing through forests, over cascades on thin, flimsy-looking bridges, past vast waterfalls, half of which were usually frozen and covered with snow. At length we came to a halt. I wasn't surprised, as the road had ended and a colossal mountain stuck up on either side. "'Are we there?' I asked. "'Not quite,' replied someone, and with that I became aware of a group of mules being led towards us. I hoped they would pass, but—no.' "'What do we do now?' I asked again. The Duke interpreted the cataract of conversation he had been listening to. "'We now have to do about an hour and a half's ride on these mules,' he said. He seemed to relish this idea. Dukes are prone to riding I have noticed. I am not. I would have given a large sum of money to have seen a glacier or something slide down the hill and obliterate those mules. We all got out of the car and the Duke and I, plus a few assorted officers who were to act as guides, made for the mules. I clambered up the side of my mount and was relieved to notice that an Alpini soldier was going to lead the beast with a rope. The Duke and the others rode these mules as if they liked nothing better. I sat like a pair of compasses on mine. We started off, first of all over a perilous wooden bridge, and then off up a precarious slope at an angle of forty-five degrees. Oh, that ride! For one hour and a half I was busily engaged trying to avoid sliding off over the mule's tail. That road was a disgrace if you could call it a road. It was a narrow, twisting track, winding through a pine forest at an almost impossible angle. Many times on that journey I felt it was a toss-up as to whether my mule and I would go sliding all the way back to the bottom of the hill. The path was made of large, rough stones with occasional wood struts across it and apparently the object of the designers had been to take one round the most frightful, hair-raising corners and nerve-shattering ravines. I confess that when crossing a mighty chasm full of raging mountain torrent on a three-foot bridge I was in a funk. These mules were amazing. They seemed to think nothing of crossing one of these elementary bridges with a half-melted glacier underneath on three legs with the other over the side. They ought to ride monkeys, not mules, in these places. An hour and a half of this, I thought as I rode along. My alpini guide was ahead, assisting the mule and me by means of a long rope fixed somewhere near the mule's nose. I couldn't see where. I wished he wouldn't do this, as it forced a pace on me which was very uncomfortable, especially about the seat of the trousers. I didn't like to speak about it, though, as I hate hurting people's feelings, even in alpini's. It seemed to last for hours, that trip. A never ending forest and a path that seemed to have been designed to include everything in the way of excitement. At last, when my stamina and nerve were at the lowest ebb, I became aware of the fact that there was humanity about. This phenomenon manifested itself by means of sundry swarthy faces which peeped at one from behind trees. The woods became alive with curious dark brown eyes glaring out of the undergrowth. These faces belonged to the Alpini whose forest home we had now reached. The sight of an English officer awakened them a bit, the first they had ever seen, and a poor specimen at that. I must have looked like a sort of mascot officer on a toy mule, of the sort you might see at Gamages. I did my best to throw an expression of I love hunting and am a devil for riding" into my face, but I fear I failed. These mountaineers saw through it. At last our cavalcade came to a welcome halt. The Duke, who had enjoyed the ride, I think, dismounted and I removed my stiff and battered body to the ground. The mules were dragged off to some cavern but were unfortunately fostered for our return. We now had to do the rest of the journey on foot. We scaled a precipice and at last reached what we were looking for, the forest mountain home of the Alpini. We saw the colonel of this regiment and he showed us all around. I still felt I was riding the mule. The Duke, on the other hand, was walking about as if nothing had happened. I looked with pain at the various means of defense and offense employed by these wonderful mountaineers. Oh, that mule! I was shown ridiculous trenches which ran up to the side of an almost perpendicular mountain of solid rock. In some cases I observed that the Austrians and Italians shared a mountain. Appalling discomfort and no result. The only offensive that occurred in these volcanic regions was occasionally when an Italian would unexpectedly meet an Austrian round a boulder, and would at once engage in mortal combat, ending probably by having a dagger, or possibly a bayonet, stuck in each, and both rolling down six thousand yards of mountains, there to be marked hereafter by two neat but small wooden crosses. Such is national antagonism. After an exhausting few hours looking at these wonders, we were piloted back to lunch. These Alpini saw other human beings about once a year. So when I was dragged into lunch, they were determined to make the best of it. Being a British officer, too, the interest was intense. The ancient mariner, stopping at one of three, was nothing to this. They held me in conversation for an incredible period. I thought that lunch would never end. From about half-past twelve to four o'clock it lasted, and during that time I had to describe what was going on on other fronts, and war news generally. Poor devils! They were stuck away up in these impossible mountains without any chance of coming into the world. I suppose some day years hence they will come back into the world and find that the war's over. They will never hear about it otherwise. I spent many days after this going to see various forms of mountain fighting, and I wandered through many miles of alpine scenery, spent hours in many a still mountain forest glade, and pondered on this distant, obscure warfare which was being relentlessly pursued. I saw all the celebrated mountains which had been captured, and had many a meal with various mountain detachments. Night and silence, midst those vast mountains, was a wondrous thing. Very depressing to me, somehow. The futility of it all seemed to hit me hard. I remember near Monte Piave coming to some small, isolated wooden crosses marking a few graves on the icy shadows of the mighty mountain, and I couldn't help evolving a small verse as I looked at the scene, and have since made a large painting of the theme. Here amidst the frozen dolomites a battered cross, some mountain flowers, a breeze, a hero of a hundred alpine fights one hears his story from the whispering trees. I left the mountains one fine morning and returned to Udine. My time was up now on the Italian front. I had seen many things and had absorbed the many wonderful details in connection with the peculiar war which it was necessary for Italy to cope with. The main feature which struck me most forcibly was their great engineering ability their rapid rebuilding on devastated areas, their great wire-rope transport schemes in the mountains, etc. I left the Italian front, taking my hat off deep and low to their ability. Before leaving Italy, I asked permission to visit Rome en route. I was very keen to do this. As I was so near, I was most anxious to have a day amidst the historic wonders of Rome. I was readily given leave, so off I started and left Treviso in a pullman car seat for the ancient city on the Tiber. After Rome I was to return to England to turn the mass of impressions and detail I had obtained into a set of pictures of life on the Italian front. I determined to work a bit in Rome and then return, via Paris, to London to complete the job. I arrived in Rome. End of chapter thirty. Recording by Philip Gould.